Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the year 1768, the British Empire believed that they had honed in on the source of troublesome sedition in the North American colonies and singled out Massachusetts as the primary culprit. In a stunning move, the Empire ordered General Thomas Gage to occupy the city and set in motion a path of bloodshed and chaos. In March of 1770, Bostonians were fired upon by Imperial forces in an event that would become known as the Boston Massacre and three years later, colonists had their revenge at the so-called Boston Tea Party. On today's episode, we discuss the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, Boston Bloody Boston. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and events that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, Keep up with news and appearances on my author's website, BradyKreitzer.com. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, WartimePodcast.com. On today's episode, we're continuing our discussion of the rising tensions between the American colonies and the British Empire abroad. We've really been focusing in the last few episodes about taxes. Officially, we can say revenue policy. And what we've seen is that the American colonies have viewed any tax levied on them in any way, shape, or form as a problematic tax. We saw the Sugar Act of 1764 arouse suspicion amongst the very wealthy mercantile class of Boston, Philadelphia, New York. And we've seen the Stamp Act become highly politicized and push the colonies to a breaking point. It's important we note, at this point in the discussion, that no one is talking about revolution yet. What you're seeing are angry British subjects who are demanding British rights. They're not talking about American rights. They're not talking about infringement of their natural American rights. They're phrasing all of the debate and all of the discussion in terms of their rights as Englishmen. That's what we've seen thus far. It's been a tumultuous time in the American colonies. There's no question about that. But what we've seen in the last few episodes is that if there really is one ground zero for this anti-imperial sentiment, if there really is one targeted area where most of this hostility is fomenting, it's becoming New England, specifically Boston. Now, today's episode is going to be all about Boston, and more specifically, uh, all about Massachusetts. Because in the minds of many of the people on all sides of this debate, the real heart 
of anti-imperial sentiment can be found there. It's no surprise that early on, Britain's native allies, those peoples on the frontier, will refer to all revolutionaries as Bostonians. They wear that as a point of pride. Uh, I think it's very revealing, though, and very important for us to really understand this more. So in this episode, Boston, beautiful city, wonderful place, historic, historic place, takes center stage. I want you to understand why the narrative makes sense. I want you to understand why Boston is no accident these events happen there. And I want you to understand how very reasonable people make very rash and, quite frankly, very foolish decisions based on the pronounced pool of politics. Remember, politics is everything in the American Revolutionary period. But let's have a quick refresher just to set the stage for the events that we'll talk about today because we are going to cover a very broad swath of time. Eight years. Eight years in today's episode. So let's review. The Seven Years' War has come to an end. The British are victorious against their French enemies, but they find themselves in huge crippling debt. And not only that, they find themselves with a massive empire that they, quite frankly, are not in a position to exercise appropriate control over given their current circumstances. The first decision they make comes in 1764. It's an indirect tax, an external tax, on the American colonies. The logic of thinking is, most of the war was fought in North America, most of the new land gained was in North America, these are the people that stand to gain the most in the aftermath of the war. Factor in that they have the lowest taxes in the entire empire, an empire which, mind you, stretches five continents, and it seems like a no-brainer that a revenue stream should come from them. Again, this is a little bit of insight into the British mind. In 1764, the British will, uh, we can say, reinvigorate the Molasses Act of 1733 with the creation of what's known as the Sugar Act of 1764. This was designed to rein in uh, some of the illegal smuggling, we can say, of French sugar byproducts from the Caribbean, and hopefully uh, incorporate more British sugar byproducts in North America as a result. Well, it was viewed as an entire affront to everything that was British to the people specifically of the Northeast, the major import-export merchants of Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. What you saw was a very wealthy upper crust of New England life, very affected by the Sugar Act of 1764, and the way they were affected was in their pocketbooks. They wanted to make as much money as possible. Any British law they believed that included taxing them was an affront to their rights. Now remember, to this point, up until 1764, the British have never ever taxed the American colonies before. The American colonies handled their own taxation, their own revenue, and therefore their own defense. Now that the empire is so big, the British are trying to incorporate North America a bit more into their overall imperial strategy. Well, by 1765, we see for the first time in the history of British North America, a new direct tax placed on the Americans. And this is called the Stamp Act of 1765. 
Now, the Stamp Act was very unusual in terms of uh, the consistency of British policy of the age. Because, again, the Americans have never, I repeat, never been directly taxed before. But now, everyone in British North America, when they want to buy a paper product, when they want to submit a legal document, anything that involves paper in any way, have to buy this uh, stamp in which the revenue, some of which went back to the empire, but most of it went to the internal defense of British North America itself. The Stamp Act riots were the greatest political weapon that the anti-imperialists ever got. It was a gift wrap in a bow uh, for the revolutionaries or the people in the future that would be revolutionaries because it was something that everyone could see. It was something that everyone could be affected by. Why would the average person care about the pocketbooks and the purse strings of some merchant on the coast of Boston? They don't. But if you make the tax something real, which the Sugar Act did not do, but the Stamp Act did, suddenly you have the single greatest political tool that the rebels and the future revolutionaries and certainly the rabble-rousers could have asked for. All across New England, in Philadelphia, in New York, you see these renegade groups of angry protesters who call themselves the Sons of Liberty, rising up and demonstrating. Some of them are damaging imperial property. Some of them are burning likenesses of tax collectors. Some people are even tarred and feathered in this time. You see very extraordinary reaction, which causes administrators back in London to take a very hard look at what exactly their policies are doing. Now, this is a very important time, and it's where we left off in our last episode of Wartime, because what we're seeing here, very importantly, are two sides politically beginning to harden. I really believe that when an issue becomes political, uh, the people become silly in response. Suddenly, it's about scoring points, brinksmanship, more than about getting something done and finding appropriate and sometimes creative solutions. One side digs in, the other side digs in, and it's really, truly a race to the bottom. And the people that suffer are the average folks of the day, not the wealthy, upper-crust individuals who are largely fighting the fight. But here's what we see in 1766. The Sugar Act and the Stamp Act are repealed. For the British... The, the issue is just too hot, and, and there is significant damage being done in North America. They have to back off. They know it. For the Americans, it's a victory. And again, the term Americans, I'll use very broadly, but really you're talking about a very small group of people uh, who are politically engaged to the point of uh, being part of this debate. For them, they've made the empire back down. Very important. They do not seek independence. That issue is far off at this point, but they prove that uh, they have the, the power to compete in a global market. And suddenly, if you're British, you have to take a good hard look at what just happened. You should be in charge. The mother, England, should control the daughter, America. But it's not working that way. It's not happening. So the hardliners in Britain demand, demand uh, a retaliatory response. What occurs is one of the great missteps in the entire age. In my opinion, I believe uh, the British will make every wrong decision to quell these debates 
and quell these issues in 1765 and all the way to 1776. There's a lot they could have done to defuse a very troubling situation in the American colonies. But instead, they turn to politics. They turn to brinksmanship. They uh, puff out their chests, and they do their best to reassert their authority. After the Stamp Act is repealed, almost immediately, almost immediately, within a few months, the British Empire will announce what they call the Declaratory Act. And the Declaratory Act is not really uh, a new law. It's not really uh, new policy. But what it is, is a very public demonstration that the British Empire is in command. Their power is supreme in their world. The American colonies may not like the rules, but they do have to follow them. The Declaratory Act was really a public admonition of the American colonies for their public and open display of insubordination, the Declaratory Act. This will not serve to calm anyone down. This will not serve to stamp out any fires. Instead, it fans the flames. We're talking about, and I'll stress this again, a very small amount of people in 1765 and 1766 that are openly angry with the British Empire. This is largely an urban phenomenon. This is largely a northeastern phenomenon. You don't see people in Virginia. You don't see people in North Carolina or South Carolina or Georgia participating in this at all. You don't see it. And this is, again, part of the issue. When the Declaratory Act is revealed, when it's put in place, it serves as one of, again, another great pieces of political propaganda that the American rebels, the American inciters, we can say, can really spin to their favor. Now, this is going to take us to the year 1767. In 1767, we have a bit of a peace going on in North America. The Sons of Liberty are still out in force, but they, for the most part, are not demonstrating public outrage, we can say, the way they were during the Stamped Act riots two years earlier. But the British still find themselves in the same predicament they were before. They have a crushing debt. They have a crippling debt. And they've got to pay for it. Again, the American colonists may not like it, but the British Empire is much more than 13 American colonies. The entire empire is at stake. Factor in even more, now you have members of the British government who want to make it a point to put the Americans in their place. Again, politics are everything in this age. And in 1767, we see the next step toward, uh, I think, fomenting even more unrest at the time. And sure enough, it has to do with tea. So here's the deal. Uh, by the 1760s, people in the British Empire are in love, in love with foreign goods. Most notably tea. Now, I, I ask my students this uh, on a regular basis, and we always get a good laugh out of it. Uh, but I ask them, what is the most British drink you can think of? Uh, and inevitably, tea is the answer. Tea. Well, here's the issue. Uh, tea grows in East Asia. Tea does not grow in England. Uh, the best tea in the world, the only tea that an Englishman would drink, will come from East Asia. Yet that is the least English place in the world. 
I mean, you're not talking about tea being grown in England as England's great national drink. You're talking about tea imported from the other side of the world. That, my friends, is empire. And it's why I do what I do. Those dynamics are just endlessly fascinating to me. I mean, not to get off topic, but I will. Um, you ask anyone in the foodie world where you get the very best Indian food on the planet? The answer, surprisingly, is going to be London, England, not anywhere in India. And that's an amazing thing. I mean, tikka masala is like the quintessential Indian dish for most Westerners. And, and it's also one of the national dishes, in many ways, of, of Britain today. So it's an amazing thing. And the American colonists, you have to remember, are part of this globalized economy. While the Americans want tea, they have a heavy desire for tea. And the British want to give it to them. But remember their mercantile system, their closed economy. By 1767, it's not reaping the benefits it's really designed to. And it has to do with tea. The British will establish, effectively, uh, their own small navy uh, in the 17th century for bringing tea from the east back to England. They call it the British East India Company. And they put some great restraints on this group of investors. Most notably, uh, that the British East India Company cannot sell tea to anyone but England. Again, the Americans want tea. The people in the Caribbean want tea. We know that. But if you filter the tea through England and let the British, uh, I guess, import-export brokers have their share, you really tend to centralize the wealth in the heart of the empire. And for them, that makes total sense. Well, they have a very real problem by 1767 with this system. It's that um, as they bring tea in from the East in the British East India Company, the British will put a tax on that good. Of course, that tax, in terms of price, will be trickled down to the, to the consumer, and tea will be more expensive. So Americans will buy tea from the British, but they buy it at a premium rate, a very expensive rate. And obviously, if they could find a cheaper alternative, they would. Well, sure enough, here comes this globalized economy. The Dutch do precisely what the British do. They have a company that brings tea from the East to their own world, but they place no tax on it. And they'll sell directly to the Americans. So just as we saw with the French using molasses in the Caribbean, the American colonists are buying illegal, by British standards, tea for a cheaper rate. We call it smuggling. And as much as we don't like to talk about it, much of the American economy in the 1760s and really before uh, was built on illegal smuggling of goods from other European powers. Sort of an amazing thing. So this leads us to 1767. Uh, in 1767, the British Empire uh, will pass what they call the Townsend Revenue Act of 1767, which, uh, again, tries to balance out an economy designed for them to control by placing strategic new taxes on goods uh, that will require Americans to buy British rather than illegal foreign goods. Charles Townsend, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, will really come up with this in 1767. And you might wonder, if we just saw some very severe outrage in 64 and 65 over the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act, uh, so much so that the Empire actually had to back down, why in the world 
Why in the world would they try to implement a new tax on imported goods like tea, something that all Americans will drink on a regular basis? It doesn't seem like the best way to calm uh, unsettled nerves. And I think this is what's really important about the politics of the American Revolution. When you look at the, the issue from the beginning in 1763 to the end, 20 years later in 1783, the Peace of Paris that ends the war, what you have is a real disconnect in perspective uh, from one side and the other. The Americans see one event one way. The British, as hard as they try, can't see it the same way. And I think the Townsend duties, these new taxes on imported goods like tea, like uh, stamps, like glass, like paper, like paint, uh, I think this really reveals one of those disconnects in 1767. From the perspective of the British, they believe the Americans are upset about direct taxes being placed on them. Direct internal taxes, that is. So they believe, well, if we, of course, still need to raise revenue, uh, if we place an, an indirect external tax on them, well, they'll be okay with it. And the towns and duties are not an internal tax. They're an external tax. It's a tariff on, again, goods coming into the continent. This does not really affect Joe Schmo down the street. This does not really affect Mrs. Abbott on the farm outside of town. This, again, directly hits the pocketbooks of the people who make their living, the mercantile wealthy class of Boston, importing and exporting goods. But this will come at the worst possible time. And again, the British don't really see the problem. They say, this is an external tax. I thought you, the Americans, had a problem with internal tax. But what they don't realize is it's become so political at this point that now the Americans have a problem with all taxes. All taxes. All taxes now. Even the smallest tax are viewed as a great infringement of their rights, at least in the minds of some. For the people who are spinning these politics, they say keep the taxes coming because it gives them more power and ultimately lets their message grow even more. When this occurs, you begin to see uh, some pretty extreme backlashing occur. Americans begin to boycott British tea, specifically. They begin to buy tea from Canada, from Labrador. Uh, it's a lesser quality tea, but uh, it's one that they believe can really um, serve their purpose for the time being. To get a political victory, they'll suck down the lesser tea with no issue. Well, what we'll see out of this occurs, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Lord North, really begins to look hard at this debate. And he sees the problems, and he sees the catch-22. They're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. If they do put taxes on the American colonists, they cause unrest. If they don't, their debt continues to grow. So we'll see this handled in two ways. Uh, the first is that the towns and duties uh, are given a, a mild suspension. And that's not even really a good word for it, because... I guess you can probably say a selective usage. Most of the time, they're not put in place. The Prime Minister, Lord North, needed the law to stay in place to prove a point, but understood enforcing it would be an issue. And the other thing that occurs is that the colonists really begin uh, to resist British authority in a much more open way and a much more troubling way.
Shortly after the towns and duties are put in place, the Massachusetts colonial legislature, an official extension of the British Empire, remember that, this is not some guy in a tavern, this is the, uh, the official legislature of the colony, will begin to circulate a letter, a petition, to their neighboring colonies, basically listing their grievances and saying, you all should join in on our selective boycott. Now, when the British receive word of this, that's it for them. They're finished. Because, again, this isn't a group of rabble-rousers in the streets. This is the Massachusetts legislature. You absolutely, positively cannot have these people, who are meant to be speaking for you, the Empire, speaking out against you. It means they're losing control. We call the letter they circulate, get ready for this, the circular letter. Very easy. And the British use it to really take a stand against these people that are doing it. This is 1768. In 1768, uh, the American secretary in Britain, uh, Lord Hillsborough, will send a letter uh, to the governor of Massachusetts, a, a British official, uh, basically saying, uh, stop this letter from going around, stop this letter from spreading. If any other assemblies respond to the letter in a positive way, pretty heavy-handed, dissolve them. That's what he says. And even pushing it further, the British will send... Uh, a warship, the HMS Romney, to Boston, a 50-gun warship to patrol the harbor, just sending a message, just sending a reminder, hey, we're still here, and we're still in charge. Well, you can imagine what the presence of the Romney, that British warship, does. It simply builds and builds more resentment on top of what already existed. Again, this has now become deeply political. Both sides are trying to score points instead of trying to resolve the issue. While well, the Romney's patrolling Boston Harbor, and then uh, things really start to ignite when the Romney declares uh, that a local sloop called the Liberty, owned by a man you may have heard of, John Hancock, is guilty of smuggling. And they actually take the ship into their custody. When that happens, John Hancock, being one of the people, really... I think pushing this sort of anti-imperial attitude. He was one of the wealthiest men in Boston, as well as one of the youngest of that wealthy class, so a real playboy, if you would. Um, it pushes pushes Boston over the edge. Hancock uh, begins to kind of pull the strings of the Sons of Liberty. Riots occur again, just like they did three years earlier. Again, this is now 1768. And British policymakers have to make a decision. They know as all empires in history know, that rebellion is infectious. It spreads. And with those colonies so closely grouped together, uh, it would be a nightmare for the British Empire if this re Massachusetts pseudo-rebellion began to spread into Pennsylvania and New York. So they dropped the hammer pretty hard. And again, uh, we're saying they're making all the wrong moves at all the wrong times, which are really leading toward revolution in a very real way. In October of 1768, uh, Hillsborough will contact General Thomas Gage. Thomas Gage uh, is the commander-in-chief of all British forces in North America. He is the head honcho of the British military on the continent. And he tells Thomas Gage, Massachusetts is very close, if not already, to being in a state of rebellion. I want you to occupy the colony, especially 
the colony of Boston. Now, Thomas Gage is a really fascinating guy. He fought valiantly in the Seven Years' War. He was at Braddock's defeat, where General Edward Braddock was killed as a younger man, now 13 years in the past. Whenever Thomas Gage gets the order, it's October 1st, 1768. He will move four British regiments into the city of Boston to occupy the city. It's deemed by many to be a harsh and radical overstep of imperial authority. And for the people who are looking for it, this is all the evidence they need, that there's some real shenanigans coming on the, on the, on the edge here in the near days. But the occupation of Boston begins in 1768, and it will not relent until the American Revolutionary War, really, the hot war, the shooting war, begins. So the status quo of Boston, for really the next seven years, is that there are British troops in deep and entrenched occupation. Now again, Thomas Gage will move four regiments initially, uh, sort of as a shock into Boston. But these are not soldiers shooting at anyone. These are basically uh, people to patrol the streets just to sort of through proximity calm things down in the city, saying, hey, we're the Empire, we're here, you see our troops, no one's fighting each other, no one's shooting at each other, uh, but there are just always British troops present in Boston at the time. Now, this is where the narrative, I think, that we all know and love really starts to deviate. When we talk about the build-up to the revolution, we really make it seem like one event piling on top of another until the unthinkable occurs, Lexington and Concord, and we'll get there. But you have to understand, after Thomas Gage moves his troops into place, and after the towns and duties, this new tax on tea, are repealed, things calm down pretty quickly. I mean, from 1768 to 1770, uh, you have a real dislike for the British presence in the area. Uh, but things calm down so much that uh, Thomas Gage actually takes two of the four regiment he placed in the city and takes them out, simply because they're not necessary. What you're left with at the time are two regiments remaining. They are the 14th and 29th Regiment of Foot, for those of you keeping score at home. Um, but you also have to remember a few things. One, there's only about 8,000 total troops in all of British North America. That includes Canada all the way down to Florida. And Thomas Gage has to be very careful about how he allocates these forces. Because remember, you have serious Indian unrest continuing on the frontier. You can't put all of your men in Boston uh, to calm down a political uh, uh, unrest, a political debate, effectively, that hasn't really turned hot yet. But that's the way things will be until the year 1770. The presence of the British are there. They're not welcomed. Uh, but things are calming down. Now, as we get to 1770, I don't want you to believe that, you know, everything's just peachy in British North America, because it isn't. Massachusetts still is very angry at the tax policy of the British. They still don't want those British troops there. But the riots decrease and the rebellions decrease. But you start to see a lot of the anger and anxiety that was expressed in general at the big government, we can say, the empire, really start to be pressed after about two years of occupation, really a year and a half of occupation, on the British soldiers in the city themselves. Now, we're moving into a very controversial point in American history that's viewed very differently uh, by the Americans than it is by the British. But we're going to start in February of 1770. Uh, you see a lot of people pretty regularly swarming uh, the British soldiers standing guard in the city of Boston. 
and they're starting to single out tax collectors, customs officials, and British administrators uh, on a low-level sort of bureaucrats, we can say, that they believe are a major part of the problem. Well, in February of 1770, one of these demonstrations will occur near the house of a man named Ebenezer Richardson. Richardson is a customs employee for the British Empire. Richardson tried to disperse uh, a, a sort of unruly mob of protesters from a nearby loyalist shop. And suddenly by doing that, Richardson kind of made himself the target of their animosity. Uh, they surround his house. They throw rocks at his home. One of these rocks will strike his wife. Uh, and he becomes angry. He takes out a gun and he fires out his window into the crowd. He hits one person with that shot because remember these guns are not terribly accurate but the person he hits unfortunately is a young man a 12 year old boy named christopher snyder or christopher cider you see the name pronounced both ways christopher cider is probably the more agreed upon story cider the 12 year old boy will be hit by the bullet he won't die immediately he'll die later that night and his death uh, becomes in the mind of many the very first death in the entire revolutionary struggle. Now again, this was not a British soldier shooting at an American boy. Uh, this was a low-level British bureaucrat whose home was surrounded, whose wife was, was harmed by this mob firing randomly into a crowd and hitting a young man. Uh, but Christopher Sider will die. He's 12 years old. I mean, it is the epitome of the evil, overbearing empire. And of course, of course, Boston's primary politicians will jump on the scene to really spin this into the greatest affront of liberty they've ever seen. Samuel Adams will actually plan Christopher Sider's funeral, this 12-year-old boy. 2,000 people will attend. That is crazy. And it's crazy because there's no way a young boy of almost no means would have that kind of support. But his death is symbolic. His death is symbolic, and it's going to lead us into a much more difficult scenario just a few weeks away. That, of course, will lead us to the fateful night of March 5th, 1770, the night we know famously in American history as the night of the Boston Massacre. Now, what I'd like to do is explain this scenario to you, uh, not as an American explaining an American revolt or rebellion, but as an imperial historian explaining a rebellion in an empire. That is, we're taking ourselves out of the story, taking our emotions out of the story, and getting a better sense of exactly what happened. It's going to begin on the evening of March 5th with a private named Hugh White. Now, Hugh White had been in Boston for quite a while, and he was standing sentry duty, which basically meant he had to stand outside, maintain a presence, and keep things under control just by doing so. He's not ordered to shoot anyone or attack anyone in any way. Well, his commanding officer is a captain named John Goldfinch, and Goldfinch is nearby. And as custom at the time, because the Bostonians really have figured out the British will not shoot at them under any circumstances, they can basically say whatever they want. If you've been to Boston lately, that hasn't changed much. A young man named Edward Garrick begins to shout at the officer Goldfinch. Uh, and Garrick is shouting because he works for a wig maker. And Goldfinch, in his estimation, owed the owner of the shop some money. So he's basically yelling at Goldfinch, saying, Hey, 
pay my boss. Well, Goldfinch ignores him uh, because he did pay off his tab. Not that any of these details are particularly important, but it goes to show how stupid uh, these events can really begin as, and what they turn into is almost unthinkable. Well, as the night progresses, more and more Bostonians begin to surround uh, this one man on sentry post, White, and they continue to shout at him, and the crowd continues to grow. Before long, there's over a hundred people shouting at this one soldier on sentry duty. It's cold, it's winter, it's Boston in March. Shortly after that, Captain Thomas Preston will receive word that this very nasty scene is starting to develop, and he'll go on scene with six other privates from the 29th Regiment of Foot. Uh, they will sort of line up along the Customs House on King Street, they have a crowd of over 200 people in front of them, shouting at them, yelling at them. It's total chaos. Now, from uh, the people on hand who were there, what we see is this. The crowd begins to shout curses at these six British soldiers. Nothing unusual. They begin to throw snowballs at these six British soldiers. Nothing unusual. The snowballs turn into rocks and soon glass bottles. One of these young men is knocked down by one of the bottles stands up and fires his weapon. Uh, shortly after, in the chaos and the melee, the other men of his party, six of them, uh, will randomly fire as well. They're never ordered to fire, and by most accounts, someone shouted, damn you fire, from the crowd of Bostonians, right? Egging them on, goading them into it. But it happens. By the end of it, 11 men were hit. Five people would die. Now, if you're the British Empire and you're viewing this, this is a worst-case scenario because you know you aren't what the Americans in Boston are making you out to be. But then again, you've just shot 11 people and killed five. Whether it's intentional or not is up for debate. The crowd begins to panic. They disperse at first. They soon rally together very angry as these dead bodies lie in the streets. And the acting governor of the colony, Thomas Hutchinson, a man who is no friend to the Sons of Liberty, will soon emerge and say that there will be an investigation. While there is an investigation, uh, in the meantime, there begins to be a, a pronounced propaganda battle about these soldiers. And as you can imagine, it's all political. And of course, these men will be put on trial. Now, interestingly enough... Eight soldiers will go on trial on November 27, 1770. The man who's defending them will be a relatively respected, but little-herited, uh, Massachusetts lawyer named John Adams. This is the man that will be a signer of the Declaration of Independence and the future President of the United States. Now, Adams' defense is not as principled, I think, as many would like, but I think he understands the value because he is someone who does sympathize with a lot of the uh, people who are declaring infringement of rights, uh, that if you find these men guilty of a lesser charge, one that they're not, you know, put to death for, uh, or you can get them acquitted altogether, it kind of serves both sides well to keep things under control uh, and keep the extremists at bay. Well, sure enough, uh, most of the men are acquitted. One man is found guilty and his hand is branded. They're quickly sent away to England before anything can happen to them. So that event becomes known as the Boston Massacre. And I think at the risk of going too much into this, that's worth noting. We call it that because of the spinster efforts, so to speak, of politicians of the 1770s. 
Whenever you hear a word like massacre in the 1770s, you don't hear that all the time. That word is specifically kept uh, in this social context for what occurs when an Indian murders a white person. Anytime that an Indian or a group of Indians will attack a white settler, it's always in the newspapers called a massacre. When white settlers kill Indians, you never hear it called a massacre. Remember, the Paxton Boys Revolt. Uh, this was not the Paxton Boys Massacre, even though they killed 20 innocent Conestoga Indians. So, calling it the Boston Massacre, which, again, from what I described, doesn't really sound much like a massacre. Keep in mind, when those six soldiers fired their guns, their captain was actually standing in front of them. So why would he order the shot if he's standing in front of them? He didn't. Uh, it was a really bad situation that took a really bad turn really fast. But the fact that we call it the massacre really indicates how you want them to feel. Remember, politics is all about eliciting an emotional response from an individual about an event. You don't want this to appear as a very sad, unfortunate twist of events. No, you want, you know, five, you have a group of five people dead. You want to feel like the British are bad people for doing it, right? Politics is about eliciting an emotional response. Well, that's exactly what happens in 1770. Uh, and things will, again, kind of calm down until we get to the year 1773. The trial of the Boston Massacre really serves to uh, give a sense that justice was done. Maybe not the decision most Bostonians wanted, but it kept things under control. This gets us to 1773. Uh, and an event that we know very well that I think is, is worth noting uh, at the end of this episode, since we're talking about Boston. In Britain, uh, the empire is facing a whole host of issues. Uh, not all of them has to do with the debt, but a lot of them has to do with the inner workings of the government. I'll do this quickly, uh, but not too fast. Well, one of the issues they have is that there is a massive surplus of tea coming out of India. A lot of it was rather complicated global economic factors, but the long and short of it is, uh, the British are sitting on this whole host of tea, uh, this, whole, this whole wealth of tea they want to get rid of. And they think, why not send it to the American colonies? I mean, uh, these are people who will buy it. They buy most of our goods, uh, and it'll serve to build some goodwill. Now, when the tea is on its way to America, again, the British still have this issue of taxation to deal with. They still have to make a little money on the side through revenue stream. So what they decide to do is sell the tea at an extremely discounted rate. Cut the price of the tea virtually in half. And then they'll add a small tax on top of it that the Americans will have to pay. So let's say the tea costs $10 a crate. Well, they cut it down to $5 a crate plus a $2 tax, still giving you a $7 total, which is $3 less than your original payment anyway. Uh, they're effectively giving cheaper tea. And from the British viewpoint, nobody can be upset about this. I mean, it'd be crazy to be upset about this. You're getting tea at a discounted rate. Again, they cut the price in half virtually. Uh, they added a small tax on top. But even with that tax, the tea is way cheaper than it would have been normally anyway. Well, of course, the politics of this have hit a boiling point. And in America, any tax is viewed as one tax too many. So even though the Americans are getting a sweet deal, quite frankly, on tea, they will not purchase the tea because they refuse to pay the tax. Remember, they're actually getting a better deal with the tax 
than selling the tea without it. But they would not do it. And that tax is part of the Townsend duties that was sort of remaining behind here in 1773. While the tea ships arrive in Philadelphia and New York, and they're turned away. The people are waiting on the dock. They will not buy this contraband tea. And the tea ships arrives in Boston, and the, and the governor, Hutchinson, uh, refuses to let it turn away. He wants to make a point. He wants principal to, to take command. He says this tea will be unloaded. Now, how much was the tea tax? It was three pence. Okay, three pence. What that means is the average Bostonian would have to drink about 100 gallons of tea before they paid the equivalent of a modern dollar in taxes. Think about how Looney Tunes that statement is. These people are standing on the docks, rioting, rebelling, over paying a three pence tax on tea. Again, they'd have to drink about 100 gallons. 100 gallons before they even spent the equivalent of a dollar. Clearly, this is not about taxes. Clearly, taxes are a symbol of something else. Taxes are now a symbol of sovereignty. And again, when the extreme voices on each side take command, the first casualty in any war are the moderates in the middle. Well, as they sit in Boston Harbor, the tea ships won't be unloaded. The people won't let them be unloaded. The Sons of Liberty in 1773 in December will paddle out in the middle of the night. We know the scene. And they'll throw the tea off of the boats into Boston Harbor. Both sides have really spun this. I'd like to touch on just briefly about what it really looked like. The Americans who went out there uh, were not doing so full of fire and brimstone. I mean, they were a very subdued, calm group. They just tossed the tea overboard. They didn't damage any property aside from the tea. Uh, in one case, a padlock was broken on the boat, and the American rebels actually replaced it. In another instance, one of these tea partiers, we can say, was caught stuffing tea into his pockets. The men with him actually stripped him naked and, of course, took back the tea and sent him home. Because what they were trying to do was send a really expressed and really clear message. This is an age of what we call gesture politics. What that means is you're doing something physical to make a statement. And the Bostonians were great at gesture politics, and the, Amer and the British knew exactly what they were talking about. Of course, from the British perspective, this would be economic terrorism. I mean, you can't argue with that. They were destroying public property to make a political point, to achieve a political goal. From the American side, no, this isn't a big deal. This is just a tea party, right? And you see how you take the Boston Massacre and you give a name like Massacre and you make it very bad. But then you give an event like the Boston Tea Party and you call it a tea party and it seems like not that big of a deal. That still persists in the modern age. Again, it's one event spun by both sides. Well, the result of this Boston Tea Party is catastrophic for Boston. The British will, will pass what they call the Coercive Acts uh, to draw Boston into submission. The Bostonians will call it uh, the Intolerable Acts. But it will be crippling. Uh, they'll shut down Boston Harbor. They will cripple the colonial economy as a result. They'll take any number of extreme measures to make sure Boston, what they believe to be the center of this revolution, plays ball. But I really want you to understand in this episode the power of politics, the power of uh, persuasion, the power of ideas, because like all political debates, it's a battle of ideology, it's a battle of opinions, it's a battle of thoughts and practices, it's a battle of not taxes, uh, but basic interpretation of what your rights are. And I would argue that neither side 
is ever on the same page enough to really see how drastic the decisions of the other really are. It's a very challenging subject. On the next episode, we go back to the frontier to learn about the Forgotten War in the West on the eve of revolution. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.